All right, let's get into it. talk about historical materialism because um one of your recent shows you said you described yourself as a historical materialist and not as and i was kind of well that's interesting like why not as a marxist or an anarchist or you know anything and i do think it is a really important way of thinking about the world that helps that helps kind of identify what's going Mm. on um so like why did you describe yourself as that Okay, well, that, that, I guess that's kind of interesting, right? So, um, for, first of all, it's like these these label terms are, are always interesting and always a problem. If I generally had mm. like a political orientation, like I would describe myself as being a communist, you know, like which obviously yeah. is a very easy shorthand that then leads to a four hour conversation about what do you mean by that term, you know? So that's that's all, always yeah, a problem. Yeah, yeah. I think in the in the last show when I'm using. A concept like historical materialism is because I guess I am trying to say that not only do I have a specific kind of intellectual approach to how I understand society and the question of social transformation, I also think mm. that that approach is important. Right, that there is a yeah. that this is on one hand what we might call a methodological or philosophical position about how do you make sense of society, and I think that yeah. is important because it is related to the question of what is radical politics and where do radical politics come from. Um, yeah, that said, just like the term communist, like the notion of historical materialism is a incre- incredibly loaded term like what actually that that means and you know some people and, and and we can really kind of get into that if you want we can flesh it out and have a good chat about it yeah i mean i think it's worthwhile because i think understanding some of the criticisms or i guess contestations around something helps you understand kind of what it mm-hmm. is but should we kind of cover off like where it came from first because i think that's it's always nice to situate things yeah. um, uh, okay and i guess like yep. Kind of like one of my, like, uh, one of the things that I find kind of difficult about it is I think that there's a bit of a tendency to place it out of history, um, on, just on the left in general and not, like, and, and not see kind of the, the development of this kind of, like, this, this way of thinking as kind of part of what was kind of going on in society as we moved into this industrial, like, capitalist mm-hmm. mode. So, yeah, like, I was just kind of doing a little bit of a, a quick reading before, but where does it where does it come from? Oh, well, like, I, I forget, or I always forget the first person who came up with it, but what it is, is an attempt to retrospectively, I guess, codify the approach to understanding society that we find in Marx, and arguably Marx is an innovator of, right? So, 
since then, mm-hmm. people have gone, okay, there is a particular method that is coming out of Marx and Marx and Engels' work. They are naming it historical materialism. Sometimes there's a, an alternative name, uh, dialectical materialism, and sometimes there's a lot of literature about the difference in relationship um, between the two. And then there's a subsequent yep. tradition of people trying to flesh this out, right? So I guess what is it at its core... It's an attempt to really say that to understand society, you need to start from the material structures and social dynamics of that society, um, in particular with an emphasis on how life is reproduced. You know, what are the forms of social organisation that facilitate and allow life to be reproduced? Then there is what are the structures that are kind of built on that and how are they in movement and transformation? What are their internal contradictions and dynamics? What are their struggles, right? And how do they then exist in concrete kind of moments? And within that, there's a whole lot going on and a whole lot that's worth arguing about. I think particularly what I think is important, um, and to pull this down, is the idea that within the material structures of a society are contradictions and struggles that hold the possibility of another society, right? So radical politics or the transformation from capitalism into post-capitalism, socialism, communism, anarchism, whatever label you want to use, is possible not because of the virtue of a set of ideas or even the uh, agency and activities of revolutionaries or activists, but because there is already an embryonic possibility within that society, in the struggles that go on within that society, that create the the social that can create the social formations, the subjects that can transform into another society. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. yeah. No. It 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 absolutely does. And I I um I note the like the because one of the kind of criticisms that I which I've often think is relatively true, is that there's this really deterministic bent, and I think that the, the can create is a, is a good thing. Can we get into, like, what we mean by material and, like, the material basis that of society? That is a and, really cause... good question. Um, yes, I think we can, right? Because I think there's often a reading when people hear words like material or concrete, what they think is physical. Does that make sense? Like. Yep. That, yeah, that, absolutely, that it, absolutely. And, and there is certainly a kind of Marxism, often the dominant tradition of Marxism, that goes, by materialism, I mean in this society they have tractors, and tractors produce this form of social organisation. In this society they have hand ploughs, and that produces this kind of social organisation. I think the way yep. to think about it is how are concrete people organised with each other in the concrete tasks of reproducing life. How do we organise what we call work? How do we organise what we call child raising? How do we organise the human, natural, creative interaction? Which is always social. Does that make sense? Like, I I think what Marx is actually trying to talk about is what are the forms of human relations that are going on um, in, in these moments? Yeah. Well, can we kind of give some examples of, I guess, what's material in a few different societies then? So, like... Well, I, well, I, I guess what I would say is everything is material. 
Like, you know, does that, yeah, like, okay. so the, well, so yeah. this is the point, right? That to understand ideas as a product and part of the yeah. li- the concrete lived lives of people, and so so okay, if we, let, let's pull it back. So, if we're thinking about some of Marx's early work, right, when he's really wrestling with uh-huh. this. What he's really trying to... One of the questions he's trying to deal with is is saying, well, where do bad ideas come from? Right? And he says, there's a lot of people around me and they think there are bad ideas out there. The way that we deal with bad ideas is we've got to teach people good ideas. Right? And Mark says, Mm -hmm. well, well, what are... That still seems like the dominant mode of politics. Totally, totally, right? You know, and... But what Marx wants to say is actually that what I want to try to explain is that these bad ideas are an entirely normal product of the way that people exist in, in, in the society. It's because that we've organised society as a class society that's alienating, where people are individualised, where, um, the, where there's a monopoly of some people who, are, who, who own the means of, of, not of production, but of making intellectual work. It's because of this. People live their lives... Um, w- within that world, and they almost spontaneously produce sets of ideas or inhale the ideology around them, right? And those bad ideas are produced by that society. You know, like if, if I was mm-hmm. to say, if we were to say, okay, what is a bad idea? It is nationalism, right? Nationalism is a bad idea. Well, well, part of the reason that it happens is because nations really exist, right? <laughs> Things are really organised uh, capitalism is organised on a global level through things like nation states. So it's no surprise that when people live in this world, that they almost, you know, that it's not just that they produce understandings of the world that are based on the idea that the world is divided into nations, you know, or, or, or yeah. the fact that you need money, right? Because everything in your life is mediated by money, right? I, when I used to be a lecturer, right, like one of the things I used to say is, well, you know, I'm. St- there will be times in academic teaching when I say something that is wrong and there is a student that says something that is right and most of you will believe me, right? Why will you do that? I was like, well, look at this room. This room is set up as as a whole series of chairs facing me at the front, right? I get to mark your papers. Yes, it is the material structures of these societies that produce those ideas. I'm going off track here, but I think when we when we're saying like what is material, it is everything, right? Um, yeah. th- then you can really get into the nitty gritty about how you cut that, right? Like like do like and how that loops back and reproduces itself, and how you try to make sense of it. Yeah. So, well, can we kind of like describe a? Th- like describe what the materiality is of a few different kind of societies. Oh, maybe because I think it. Well, probably not in totality, but um, uh, I don't know if you've ever read um Andreas Malm. No, I haven't. I know Russell a lot of Capital. people are really in, like either into him or against him at the moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been um, there's been some discourse. I mean, I I think Fossil Capital, I think, is a wonderful book, and I thought it had a really good kind of condensation of historical materialism, where he's using. Um, humans and woodpeckers as kind of a bit of a contrast to talk mm-hmm. about like what like how how these organisms reproduce yeah. themselves and he's saying well like woodpeckers have the the tool they use to reproduce themselves is it's attached yeah. to their head um you know 
woodpeckers reproduce themselves by getting grubs out yeah. of trees. They get the grubs out of trees with their beak. Whereas humans reproduce ourselves in kind of a bit of a different way in that we we produce whether it's a spear or whether it's a factory like or some sort of some sort of item which exists outside mm. of us that that we use to reproduce ourselves so is is like and i guess an understanding of materialism i've that i would say i probably have which you know the point of this is to kind of update that is is it's those things that exist outside yeah, of us. No, is, no, is that I, like a I, I fair, don't, I, is that a fair no, thing? Or? For me, it's the relationship between people and those things and how, yeah. how they create a social structure. Um, keeping, and uh, you would also add to that language as well. Like if you, the other, the other different, oh, I don't know, there's probably going to be some woodpecker biologist who's going to jump on and say that I'm um, downplaying the level of, of, um, of woodpecker creativity, but, for me, for, like it's yeah. also because human beings are linguistic, you know, and so we are yeah, always okay. caught in this living history. And language is always historical, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. it's always a. I'm reading this. Ama- I'm reading these amazing books on language at the at the moment. But I, I guess why I want to think about it: human beings are always social. That social that sociality yep. is always linguistic. Those things are always historical creations and they are creations and re and reproduce the the social relations around these things so i i don't think it's the fact that human beings have tools it's that human beings and tools and other human beings always exist in concrete and specific historical relationships right and and that that leads that that is always about who works how we think about work, how we dis and by work in this sense, I mean that creative relationship that we have with nature. What is the division of labor mm-hmm. about it? How do we these things distribute it? And then how does that give rise to other sets of ideas out of that materiality, other sets of thinkings and ways of being and spiritualities that then constitute the social totality? And what are the contradictions that exist in those things that push in different ways? Yeah, okay. So it's, I guess, it's not so much the, the things that exist, like, outside of us, but the way that our, our social relations are kind of, like, organised around those things. So, you know, a hammer, if, if, all, if all the human beings disappear right now, you know, Thanos style, mm-hmm. I haven't seen the film, unbelievably, but, you know, like, but um, disappear right now, and you just have the hammer left over, right? You know that yeah. increasingly for me is not an object of histor- uh, that historical materialism really wants to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's like it, historical materialism talks about a hammer in so much as a hammer represents like a particular type of activity that people in relationship to each other can totally. can How do. It's part of humanity's relationship. It's metabolism with the world and the social organization around that. Yeah. Okay. That's that's good. That's good. And so I guess what does thinking what does that kind of infer then? Like so it's oh, well for me what like, it infers is like what is our objective critique? Right? So yeah. so like for me it's about if we're dealing with immediate issues that are miserating people, right? That are stopping human flourishing, mm-hmm. how do we explain those things, right? So I would say and you know, this might be unfair, but for the dominant tendency on the Australian left, it is that there are bad people and bad ideas, 
right? There is something called the right, or however you want to frame it. They might have bad ideas, say, like neoliberalism, right? And they're either greedy or power-hungry or the ideas are just wrong, and they are implementing them, right? For me, I think it's saying, well, if we want to understand what is immiserating people and, and what is preventing human flourishing, we need to have an analysis of what are the basic structures of our society, and I think it's the capitalist mode of production, and then to argue, to do the difficult work of... I'd be really interested to get into this, right, to do the difficult work of trying to work out how in the concrete historical moment that we live in, that mode of production is kind of pushing in a certain way and kind of driving towards certain consequences which structure and limit what can be done in this society but how it is also producing or contains struggles that could point the way out of this society. So I think that's a very different political orientation and I think that's why it's important. Well, can we get a little bit then perhaps into mode of production and what what does mode of production mean when we're talking like when when viewed through this lens of historical materialism the mode of production is normally thought about what is the relationship between what is the relationship between means of production and relations of production right so um, what is the dynamic between the the concrete tools and how they operate and how we organize them if that makes sense so mode of production is suggesting that there are different ways in different societies where we have organized um, the question of how we do work, right? Um, how, what the, yep. you know, it's what are the tools and how do we organise how they're used, in which way, who owns, who works, those kind of things. Um, and yep. there is, guess, I guess there's another inference that is really saying that this somehow, at some level, and we can argue the margins, is the keystone of the social totality on a whole. So I think we could say that not everything in capital in capitalist society is necessarily the capitalist mode of production, but we would say that the capitalist mode of production has a profound role in defining what is the capitalist society, not saying the other bits aren't important, and we can kind of get into that. So some of the standard kind of definitions would say, well, okay, so in a the the feudal mode of production and people debate if you can call feudalism a mode of production. All right, but let's just say we, we will. In the feudal mode of production, things are organised where you have, you know, say, feudal lords who own the land. You then have peasants who have either own sections of their land and they produce, agri- they produce in large family forms of production and they either, you know, produce for direct use or they produce a tithe that goes up for, to the church or to the Lord, or sometimes they do corvée labour where they go on the, onto the Lord's land and produce land produce for him, right? And whilst there are some things that are commodified, generally commodification is very small. Money only plays a partial role in people's life. Production is for use, and it's distributed through a series of social hierarchy. While in the capitalist mode of production... Uh, what we have is that the means of production are private property. They are owned by a certain section of people. Those people take money. 
They buy commodities. They buy labor power, which is the capacity to work off another group of people. They put them to work and they produce commodities whose purpose is to sell. And through that, that sale, they want to realize a profit. So we have one mode of production, which is largely geared to the production of what we might call utility or use values distributed through a hierarchy, a certain class relationship. We have another mode of production, which is based on the production of commodities for sale to realize a profit, where we have a different class relationship and everything is kind of mediated by money. And, the, and you know, we're all talking about humanity. We're all talking about people. Sometimes we can even be talking about the same technological level, right? There are periods of time when, you know, going on even right now where people are, are being less and less but being pulled in from a variety of non-capitalist modes of production into producing for a capitalist market. So sometimes they've even got the same tools, right? But they're very different modes of production and they lead to different kinds of society and therefore different kind, you know, they're based on different relationships of people. There are different ideas about reality that exist in those societies. There are different religious uh, th things that think about society. There's different modes of education. There's, they're different, right? And, and what we're saying is that these different modes of production are, are defining it in different ways. There is tons and tons and tons and tons of debate about all of that, right? But the, uh, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask, and I, know, I understand that this is probably quite a quite a serious ask, but um, I think it might be a little bit clearer if I could ask you to invent and describe a mode of production that doesn't exist, if you know what I mean, because mm. then I guess I could kind of understand those constituent elements. Yeah, okay. Is that is that achievable? Um, well, on, on a, as a historical a materialist, I would say my imagination is limited by the society that I exist within. Right. So, so, so I would I would imagine communism, for example as as a society where we have where the means of production are shared in common so we would have a form of social relationship where we would collectively run the means of production where work would have a more equitable distribution where we would work against the division of labor so you wouldn't have a thing like a job you would just do different tasks that were determined that we got together and determined were important at the time and production and what we produce would be distributed on the basis of need and flourishing right so we wouldn't access things through money for example um, we would access things we would look at what we've produced and we would share it amongst ourselves right um sure don't that's very easy to imagine on a basis of four people five people but we will need to work out how to do that for eight billion blockchain <laughs> <laughs> uh, so is it fair then to kind of say that historical materialism can describe well i guess like feudalism it can describe capitalism it can kind of describe what we what we're i guess try to reach for in terms of a different society does it does it describe usefully um other like other historical societies it can. so indigenous uh, people in in the amazon uh, 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 i i i think it, it can right and there are good and bad examples right so th there would sure. be um i've forgotten his name there is a peruvian marxist i've got my computer in front of me so i will yeah i can't That's i can't i can't pronounce it say. um because you know my spanish yeah. is terrible but it's it's m-a-r-i-a-t-e-g-u-i um so really interesting like so for example what was bad historical materialism bad historical materialism is 
you know, kind of traditional communist parties going to South America and going, all right, we are historical materialists, therefore we think there are five different kinds of societies. There is primitive communism, there is feudalism, there might be a thing called the Asiatic mode of production, there is capitalism, there's socialism, there's communism. That's what we believe is true, and they move in a straight line. We're coming here and we're just going to stick that on reality and we go, we don't know how to understand indigenous struggles, we're just focused on workers and they just ignore what's going on, right? Then yep, there's yep, other yep. traditions such as that writer that I mentioned that is actually like, well, I am going to do an analysis on what Inca society was, what indigenous societies are today, what the struggles that are happening and produces an entirely different tradition. So um, one of the people in um, so in, in Bolivia, um, oh man, sorry, I've forgotten his name, his previous vice president, which is Alfredo Garcia Lanera, um, was from a... Tr- is this um, Evo Morales? Yeah, Evo, Evo Morales' Morales. Previous, previous vice president before the coup was, yep. a, was a guy called uh, yep. um, Alvaro Garcia Lanera who had come from that kind of more creative Marxist tradition, had been involved in, in indigenous struggles and indigenous armed groups in the 80s and is really in the mix of what I think is useful historical materialism. So I think that's what you'd have to okay. differentiate is like saying you have an approach doesn't mean that everyone who does it is good, right? And that there is a particular sure. tradition, like an orthodox Marxist tradition, that I think has not been particularly materialist itself, right? And I guess one of the ways that kind of Althusser would make us think about this is that to be to, to do theory is always an effort, right? Like when you exist in a society, you kind of like naturally fall back into the ideological forms of the thinking that that society produces. So you constantly have to like do the hard work, right, of of producing, of, of forcing yourself against that to go, how can I make critique? And and then there's another sure. interesting question about where, why is it even possible to make critique? Like, where is that capacity coming from? Um, and I would say it is struggle. It is because, you know, like Marx could not have made his critique against capitalism if there wasn't a workers' movement that was developing in the 19th century that was, was exposing the contradictions, right? Um, and, and so there is a tendency even amongst historical people who call themselves historical materialists to think in ways that are not historically materialist because the society compels you to do that. Because... Because we are, because that's what society. That's the idea, you know. Like the way that we think, um, is is constantly is based on on the material and historical structures of our lives. Yeah, well, that makes sense because I like th- there is this kind of tendency, um, even in in Marx Marx's writing, which seems really determinist, where it seems to like have this. It seems really like part of the ideological moment of of you know the the yeah, the nineteenth century, where it's saying that there's these distinct stages of history and. And it's so inevitable yeah. that, you know, that this stage will yeah. lead to this stage will lead to this stage. And, it, like, that's something that I've always kind of found a little bit difficult to grapple with. Because it just doesn't seem true, right? Like, it just seems so obviously part of, like, Yeah, part I, of and I think that's entirely right. Like, so, so there, there is... Um, so there's a number of interesting things about this, right? So there is certainly, definitely a deterministic vein in a large element of Marxism that reflects the ideas of the 19th century. I think part of the the way that we can think about this is someone like Marx is engaged in kind of an an intellectual break, right? 
with the ideas at the time. Mm -hmm. But he also brings all that baggage with him. And it's really for later people, when you look back on an innovative break, to really sort the wheat from the chaff, right? So, like, I'm not an Althusserian, and you could apply the same thing I'm saying to Althusser, but part of what he was saying is, like, really there is no moment where Marx clearly puts forward his philosophy, right? Rather, you've got to read it and pull out the consistent parts. And he also uses the metaphor that every time a new idea happens, it's like captures part of a castle, captures a battlement, right? But when it captures that sure. battlement, it, ta- it is also takes some of the old ideas with it too. So that's totally the right. And I think part of being like, what, why, I, you know, why I would say I like using the term historical materialist more than being, saying Marxist is because I don't think if you're a historical materialist, you can base all your ideas on what one person said, right? You know, and you yeah. actually you took to, to it, and it changes how you read what Marx did, and then people after them. And it's not a, a phys- philosophical shock or disastrous to go. Okay, you can really see these kind of linear teleology that is working in Marx's work. So, well, that isn't true. That's fine, right? That just advances a historical and materialist mode of understanding, rather than to be worrying that you've thrown Marx into crisis. Yeah, does that sure. make sense? That's that. That feels much better. Yeah, it, it it does. It does because the the deterministic bent has always been something which I've gone. I mean, that just it just really doesn't. Yeah, and the other things as well is like like as it like I really think Mar- Marx's work and much of things that comes from Marxism is incredibly valuable to those of us who want to understand and transform the world that we live in. Right, but I do not think our capacity to transform, understand, and transform the world we live in is hinges on the idea of defending Marx as an unblemished intellectual, right? Our capacity to transform the world arises from the contradictions within capitalist society, right? Marx helps us understand those contradictions. But if Marx was never born, those contradictions would still exist. Our capacity to understand them would still exist. And the embryonic communist potentiality that lives within it would still exist that's yeah. what i think is actually yeah, being that sounds right. a, a consistent historical materialist yeah sure and so and so i guess what you were saying then is so it's about like it's about talking about the social relations kind of like between the way individuals react to the like, structure of the society we live react in. to each other yeah. but also to but also to like the physical things that kind of we yeah. we use and so like, I guess, like, the big part of this is talking about, like, a, a class society, right? So, production and... Like, is, is that probably, like, the the kind of most important social relation in a historical materialist kind of frame? Or is there other things that are really central? Mm. Importance is a hard one to to, to go from. We don't need, like, but, a definitive but, but, ranking. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I actually think it's not a question of importance, but what it says is that... You know, the social relationships around production split and divide the populations into sets of antagonisms, right? And that division is not just, you know, in the waged workplace proper, but it can also be the division in the... Like, division in the home, right? Like, because, because there's often a tendency to go, okay, it is work, work happens... 
here, therefore what happens in the home is secondary. Traditionally, that's men important, women not so important, right? But another way to, to yep. think about it, because I'm kind of preempting some of the criticisms, the very structure of the home as something separate from production is something that arises with the capitalist mode of production. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like in, in the feudalism, like we're talking about the home as this kind of like the center of a, a bunch of yep. fields and like the, the the hearth being like the kind of the, the place. There, where there is, like if you walk and people do not understand that there is some kind of spatial temporal split where here is work and here is non-work. So, so the relationships sure. that create non-work um, uh, are just as important as are the populations that are excluded or enslaved, right? You know, sure. and and what it is saying is that these divisions are dynamic structural antagonisms. So it's not so important. It's not the importance isn't that there is class, the importance is that there is class struggle. And that class struggle sure. emerges as part of the inherent organisation of that society. Whether we think that class struggle to be guys in factories with big hammers or whether we think it to be the struggle waged by largely women in the home or those who are enslaved or those who are excluded... They are not all products of like bad ideas. They are structural antagonistic dynamics that make up that society. That sounds that sounds good. So I guess kind of then what I w- wanted to talk about. It sounds like work is a really central central idea in this. Then, well, I guess another way to think about it is what yeah what what we call work, right? What is you know the mode of production yeah. defines what is work and what is non-work. You know, but they're, but they're okay. all areas of antagonism. You know, so some, something historical material, like say social re- reproduction theorists or people coming from the Midnight Notes, you know, that they will look at the... Innov- so there was all this innovative work in, in the 70s by Italian feminists who said, well, think about what we consider non-work, what women do in the home. What they are doing there is reproducing labour power, Right. They are raising kids. They're yep. looking after men coming back from the factories. And we know that labor power is the core commodity of capitalist society. That's the source of surplus value, therefore the ultimate source of all profit, right? So when we say work, we would also include things that currently appear as non-work. Or if we think in our social environment, when we have a whole bunch of people who come home and they're like, oh, fuck, my day sucked and I'm stressed and whatever, I'm going to go do yoga what they're also doing is reproductive labor. They're reproducing their labor power to sell the next day. So, like, it uh, you've got to be very sure. careful about saying one place is central. And the, I think the other thing that maybe historical materialists in the past would do, and there's a temptation to do this, is, is to think that you could a priori determine where the important struggles are going to come from, right? Yeah, okay. That's, that's This is really important because um, definitely, like, within within myself I've been like well look I've been like broadly unemployed for all this time like by by like what kind of metric can I understand myself as part of the working classes as kind of like unemployed student yeah you know whereas if you understand like work to be to be this, this huge array yeah. of things because like in Australian society right like the production is is barely barely here like production almost all occurs in yeah but well, in Asia so, now, so, right? So the, there's a lot you've said there that needs to be unpacked, right? So <laughs> yep. so I would say on one hand, from a historical materialist perspective, 
you would say that class is a relationship that that whilst produces ideas exists whatever th- people think about it so as capitalist society is produced has continued to go it has produced more and more people that only have their labor power to sell right in a certain sense we can understand those people as proletarian whatever work that they do right on the other hand we do know through the 20th century and in the end of the 19th century there was a distinct worker identity right there was people who understood themselves as working class. There was an attachment of certain ideas of work and virtue and politics to that and certain kinds of work. That has ended, right? That went into the crisis in the 70s and it ended. And as a historical materialist, we can understand that it ended because the struggles of the 60s and 70s threw capitalism into crisis. Capital uh, then reacted by reorganising production, Right? across a global terrain and the forms of work that were deployed in societies like Australia do not match on the previous ones and have produced different and fragmentary identities and increasingly an internal hierarchy amongst that category of the proletariat has emerged too. Now when you talk about capitalism and production well capitalism is not focused on the production of goods it's focused on the accumulation of capital, taking money and transforming money into more money, right? Whether it does that by producing shoes or selling sandwiches or providing cleaners or running education training or anything doesn't really matter. For capital, what matters is turning money into more money. And then there's people who sell and people who lend money and you know, speculative investments and all those kind of things. That's all capitalism. So to, to say... Yeah. Now, so, there is some people that say, yes, but it's not all equal. There are different kinds of work which seem more crucial to capital and therefore more politically important. So in the 70s, people really focused on the factories. There's a, a group in the, U, in the UK called Angry Workers of the World who've done a lot of work around logistics. There's a whole bunch of people that say, well, actually, logistics is the... We should, we should like get jobs in warehouses and really throw ourselves into that, right? Or organising in those spots. So there certainly is that argument out there. But I, I think... Th- historically you know and and some people say in the 1600s it was sailing ships or you know whatever there there is a certain amount of truth in that right like so if you think about australia like the australia's mode of capitalist production has always been based largely on selling commodities overseas right to to, therefore dock work has a strategic power right one, you know, one of the yep. constant desires to smash organised labour on the wharves are because in that commodity chain, that work is really crucial. The longer and the more expensive it is to load stuff onto ships and send them overseas, that's a problem for capital. So in that sense, that is true. But I think what we also find historically is that rebellions can explode from all different spaces and um, ha- have a power to... Sorry, I'm kind of ranting now. No, no, that's that was really good. And something I wanted to talk about as well is to try to understand, like, I guess what was specific about Australian capitalism and then to map it on to 
to a mode of production is it seems like it does a lot of like where wealth is accumulated in Australia seems to be almost from well it not seems to be is from direct dispossession right like it's a big exports have always been agricultural goods mining and then I guess real estate has always mm-hmm. been a really important thing and all these things I guess where it doesn't seem like it's it's in the process of money being turned into more money that that this wealth is being accumulated it seems like it's it's just kind of direct direct theft from, from well uh, uh, yeah people. okay so so this yeah so how, how do we think so this goes back to what is called so-called primitive accumulation right so mm-hmm. um then this is the argument we find it in volume one of capital then there's a huge debate about this that says capitals origin like that would say their capital emerges in I think the line is in letters and the history of this is written in letters of blood and fire right is um is the quote from capital or or in the annals of history it is written in letters of blood and fire so it says as capital emerges what it does it emerges through directly violent means coming out in the 161700s that dispossess huge amount of people turns uh, creates a working class creates private property encloses people accumulates the original value of money right like you've got to have all that silver coming from south america into europe to actually have enough money literal enough money for capitalism to kick off, right? So, yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. So what happens in Australia is part of that historical process. That's the original launching point. Now, there is a particular reading that would say that primitive accumulation is kind of an opening act, and after that opening act, then we have capitalism proper, right? Or there's another reading sure. that that, um, that, that, prim- that primitive accumulation continues, happens again and again and again. So... I don't think these are contradictory because what we're talking about is what is the origin stage to create the component parts that make capitalist society. And because everything doesn't happen in the one second, that is an enfolding and inherent part of capitalist society. And at different periods of time, primitive, what we call primitive accumulation goes on and on and on and on. Um, disp- accumulation by dispossession you know, so we, we can use it in a very specific sense as we're talking about Australia. You know, someone like David Harvey would say that what we call the neoliberal period was a lot of things that were previously state-owned being transformed into private hands and then sold off. I, I don't, I don't think sure. it is a problem only on this level. It is a problem between working out what is the um, the capitalism in laboratory conditions. And what is capitalism in historic reality? And both are important. Sure. So, so sure. In, in Marx's work, if you think about capital, what he's really attempting to do is to develop capital in laboratory conditions. And this, this means something, right? So he's trying to go... And, and so he, in the Grundrisse, he says, well, fuck, how do we do this? He goes, if we just look at society, we get all these facts and figures and numbers and ideas and whatever, but we don't really understand what that means. So we have to start with that, and then mentally we have to build a process of abstraction, right, and work out what the basic constitutive elements are, and then we have to rebuild it. So what he tries to do in Capital is he goes, okay, 
I want to break capitalism down to its most basic building block. He's going to say, I'm going to start with a commodity and then I'm going to work out from there. So by the time you get through end of volume one, you're not even looking anywhere near capitalism proper. You're looking at pure spine of capitalism in laboratory conditions. And then volumes two and three that Engels had to put together attempting to flesh that out more. But then he hasn't even finished, right? But that's an attempt to think, what does it look like if we can get it in its pure abstract condition. And Paul Maddock Jr. has a a really good set of essays in his book Theory is Critique, where he's saying this is quite normal to scientific methodology, right? We're trying to work out how something exists divorced from all the other social reality. Then we are also trying to go, how does it exist in capitalist society concretely? And this is something I... Like, I haven't been very productive for the last three years because this is something I'm really wrestling with, Right. But when you get yep. to Australians, get to Australia, I think one of the really great essays is work by a guy called Bruce McFarlane. Um, and so Bruce McFarlane would say, really, the core of Australian capitalism has been that there's always been a surplus of capital flowing into Australia, right? Australia has always been sure. a place people will take and invest their money. And it has always been a place that has been able to export commodities, right? we're seeing a large amount of return coming back to Australia, starting with agricultural goods and now mining goods. And depending, either we'll stay mining goods or some thinkers of capital think it's going to be energy itself, right, or solar power components. And and that's been it. He would argue that labourism can partially be explained as a historical materialist and you know this is really what Humphrey McQueen also draws on in New Britannia the phenomena of laborism can partially be explained by this right because it me- it means there's always been an extra amount of slack in capital accumulation for those who are included in the deal so white workers there's always been an extra amount of slack so you haven't had the intense level of um of class confrontation as you have had elsewhere necessarily and it's meant that laborism which is about you know a corporatist management of the capital relation is, has been historically possible i don't and i think the important part of is yes the basis of this has been the 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 genocide and dispossession of indigenous people and the struggles of indigenous people threaten this structure right which is why yep. capital has, why the state has has constantly attempted how are we going to work this out? How how do we how do we mediate these conflicts? Does that help at all? Yeah, absolutely. It, so it, so it I really think helps. what it, like you know this is useful then when we want to answer a question about why has the transition from fossil fuels been so slow. You know, like it it is not just, you know, like part of that answer has to be in the kind of dynamic and inertia that exists within capital itself, not just that um, Tony Abbott's a knob. Yeah, yeah, well, because it seems really like neither here nor there. And and it, but it is also about identifying, like, oh, can you just wait there just for one second? Just wait there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so. I just... Oh, I grabbed the wrong book. Just wait there. <laughs> you just heard a pile of books collapsing in the background. So John Holloway, I will just turn to his... He has a two-line essay, which, you know, is the... Oh, right, that's good. You see it, called Note on Marxism. 
Marxism is a theory not of oppression, but of the contradictions of oppression. The contradictions are the expression of our strength. Right? There, there is a problem often when we get talking about this, that we're focusing too much on capital from the perspective of capital. What's actually sure. really important is locating ourselves, I think, from the perspectives of struggle, which is very, like in intellectual work, it's very hard to do, right? And, and the moments that have been the most rich have, is when theory is engaging in struggle like Mario. You know, like, so like part of the, the other part is not just explaining this is why we can't have good things. It's going, where, how do we locate in the material social structure of our lives the antagonisms that have the potential for social transformation? Yeah, sure. So, I get, so this is like, you know, the contradictions yeah. of capitalism, right? So like what, what do we mean by contradictions and like what are some of the, what are some of the ones that, that historical materialists think have tended to focus on? There, there is an argument in, in historical materialism from Marx that, that capital accumulates its internal contradictions, right? Um, Marx would say that since capital is all based on selling commodities, right, the very fact mm-hmm. that there is always a possibility that commodities cannot sell always implies the possibility of contradiction. Um, so, okay, so the, like, let, let's start with, with a certain level. So... There is an argument, right, that because of capitalist competition with each other, there is a continual drive for capitals to grow in size and um, the the techno the and technological advance, right? So as capitalism becomes more yep. and more and more productive, this means the amount of capital that is invested on on technology versus labor begins to grow exponentially. There is a particular reading, and lots of people have debated about if you can find this in Marx or, or not, right, that what this leads is to a long-term tendency for the rate of profit to fall. That whilst capital is making yep. heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of profits, proportionally, the, the amount of profit they're making on the level of investment that they're doing has a tendency to decline. And so this leads to a situation of over-accumulation, Right where basically that there is so much capital that has been accumulated that it cannot, um, it cannot uh, continue to grow at a sufficient level, leads to financial speculation, then eventually into crisis, right? So that's one theory. Yeah, I was trying to explain this to my brother in, in an argument at one point, and I was trying to say that, like, look, at some point, we can't just keep investing in Chinese factories that totally. build washing so, machines because everyone's so, got so a washing machine and you can't sell washing machines anymore. Whether this is called... Like, and there's lots and lots of problems about if you can actually measure the rate of profit, how you measure it, what it is. Like, that's a yep. huge... So let's just keep a very broad brush shorthand. But basically the argument yeah, is that capital creates crises through its accumulation, Right. That's, that's one thing. You could also add to that, say, sure. work pioneered by Rosa Luxemburg in the accumulation of capital. And she would say that capital always needs an outside, right? That if, if you uh-huh. are producing $10 worth of commodities and you've spent that five of it you've spent on means of production, five of it you've spent on labor, and you want to realize a profit, you need to sell it for $11. Where does the extra dollar come from, Right. So she has always argued that there is the need for an outside and that eventually capital would run out of an outside and this would lead to war, okay? So lots of debate about this. Now, these theories of historical materialism, 
basically say due to capital, right? Mm-hmm. It accumulates contradictions. It hits a crisis. Oh wow! Now we're in crisis. Working class, it's your moment to leap into action, right? Who otherwise have yep. been a passive victim in that process. Yeah. But yep, there's yep. another way of thinking about it, where the things that are actually driving capital accumulation, the things that are causing it is struggle itself, right? So that struggle is the motor force of capital accumulation. People don't want to work and resist work. And it's this resistance to work that has actually propelled capital's development. All right? So you can find in in uh, the first volume of, of Capital, Marx makes a, a question that really technological development in the workplace can partly be, be explained by te- attempts to deal with worker insubordination, right? And yep. this would then give us an insight into saying, well, um, if capital has a tendency of over-accumulation, right, because it, the proportion that's being invested on technology versus labour continues to grow, that partly can be explained by constant response to rebellion, right? So you can sure. then... Th- this really crystallised in theorists of the 60s and 70s who were saying, like, well, what is happening in the factory? You know, what is happening in the blue-collar factory? It's the massive breakdown of working-class discipline, Right. And capital is trying to respond to this by throwing more and more money, more and more technology into it. But what is actually happening is exploitation is breaking down because people are resisting. So I think sure. there is a more, like, I would draw on both approaches, right? And you could also not just say workers in the factory, but you could say things such as, you know, like capitalism after the, after the end of the Second World War kind of offered a deal, which was man in the factory making a family wage, woman at home doing reproductive labour. It was the rebellion yep. of women in the home around that, rebellion against sexual morality, these kind of things that threw that entire social order into crisis. So I think a more yep. interesting historical approach is one that also really emphasised crisis. There is then a challenge yep. about, okay, that can really explain the crisis of the 70s. Can it explain the crisis of, of 2008? Can we understand this is because, you know, you often look around in Australian society and go, there's fuck all struggles sometimes, right? That might be right. That might be wrong. But can we explain our potential financial crises from that perspective too? Sure. I wanted to ask about, so, like, it's, I, th- I think it's relatively easy to identify um, these contradictions kind of at the realm mm. of production and at the realm of the factory and that sort of like the production of commodities, um, or the production of commodities for sale rather, but... In Australian society, at least, you know, I've never worked mm. in a factory. I don't know many people who ever have. Are there other, like, contradictions in this kind of, like, service economy, so to speak? The service economy is particularly interesting. You know, there's a person, someone like Aaron Benenev has done some work on this. You know, the, the service economy is particularly interesting because there is a limit to the amount of, of um, technical capacity, of, of, of how much technology you can throw at it, right? There's yeah. another thing. There's another thing that's yeah okay because you can't like make people happier by yeah like well every every time and someone's every time someone says oh we're going to replace um, an aged care worker with a robot 
it's always like, and that robot will cost $7 million. Even like the cost of running an AI on a website is more expensive sometimes than someone actually on the other end of it. But the other thing that's really interesting about this is if you think about, and so here I'm really going to draw on people like Antonio Negri, Paolo Verno, and people that they're associated with. If you, you think about a lot of the forms that we of work that we do today, they rely on a kind of general social and intellectual skill that people have to embody, right? So when, when you go sure. to a cafe, you're not just getting a coffee, you're getting the experience, right? And what you're relying yeah. on is that the people working in that cafe deport themselves in a particular way that is cool, right? This is really interesting for capitalism because it means the thing that is really valuable lives in the body of the worker, right? And so how capital is trying to control that general intellect is really, really interesting. Like when you go to university, and I love this example, like when you go to university, one of the ways that capital is accumulated at university is through your um, through, through your plagiarism checking software, Right? Where you know the university pays a a fee to um, a third party company that then accumulates an asset based on all the essays that are submitted. Right, every time you submit an essay, it's run against all the other essays that have already been submitted. Right, so what we're seeing here is that students are producing the very asset that then the the companies sell to the university. Now, is that rent? Right? Is there a difference between standard commodity production? Is that rent that that is choosing? Is does Facebook produce rent? Right, like there's lots of interesting arguments there, but there's plenty of things that are separate from hitting a bit of metal with a hammer, where money is being transformed into more money in a society like Australia, where there is an antagonistic relationship. Right, and so I think part of being a historical materialist is rejecting that kind of notion that struggle was tied to only a particular form of the work relationship but rather being going well what are the form what are the antagonistic relations that exist in our society across the social terrain and what is the embryonic communist potential in them and how can that emerge because that is something else that i think is really important is that the, yeah. the core of this analysis is saying that capitalism is actually pregnant with another society yeah well is that kind of part of like what you were saying before about, um, you know, well, h- how can how can struggle and how can these like even these these thoughts against capital yeah. kind of emerge? And is it because, well, it's cool, like it's it's cool when people are able to think in this sort of way, and that's part of what like our capacity to do that is part of what capitalism part, needs to drive. Partly, but also forward. just it kind of creates it, right? Like that, you know, yeah. Marx's line is that capital creates its own grave digger. The the antagonisms that it makes compels things beyond it. You know, like. To right now, if we, if we people, there was a housing crisis in Australia, right? Absolutely. If people were saying, fuck, we, need, we want to fight about this, we are going to mobilise and we are going to win, an evi- we are going to win a monitorium against, a blanket monitorium against evictions, right? We are going to take mm-hmm. over and transform empty housing stock or buildings or whatever into commonly owned stuff and we are going to limit... The, uh, the the ability for price growth, right? In if pe- in mm-hmm. that process of struggle, by fighting for things that even most people would conceive, maybe they conceive it as possible within that society, right? They would begin to tra- people would begin to transform their relationship with themselves and each other. 
you know, even coming together yep. to collectively organise around those questions, people would begin to transform themselves and see another potential about how things could be done, right? Simultaneously, yeah, oh, yeah. if we won those things, there's a large chance that that would produce a further crisis of capitalism, right? You know, it, would, it potentially yep. could make things worse in capitalism and that would compel people to struggle even further. So there is something in how, if we struggle here, that produces a potentiality to go beyond it, right? It's not determined. So, I, I think there is a, you can be too deterministic, right? And there is a history of various kinds of Marxisms to be too deterministic. I would keep it as that there is an embryonic potential that comes out of the these struggles by people coming together to fight over things in the here and now, whether they're seen as bread and butter, moral, ethical, ideological, whatever, right? By coming together to fight over those things, people transform themselves and open a different potentiality. And I, I think that makes us think about those of us that are kind of that small minority that want to see this happen. It should make us think about our role differently. Sure. Like the point isn't to be an activist to produce more activists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the point is rather like where are these like where are these points in my life? Can I participate in them? Can I push them? How can I circulate that experience? To me, that seems like a really important thing. I think there are lots of little struggles that go on in Australian society all the time, but they remain isolated from each other. I think the idea of if the, working out ways that those struggles encounter each other so they can kind of thicken and become gelatinous with each other is important. And how do we understand? How do we theorise this and develop a better understanding of what's going on? That seems to be very, very important. Being a, what I would call an activist, I, I don't think is super important. And particularly if yep. the model is, which often activism has, is society is inert, it is bad, there is this good group of people, they are activists, they do activisty things, we should get more people like them and we should try to reproduce ourselves as activists. I think as a historical materialist, there's a really great essay called Give Up Activism, which is trying to explain how the structural dynamics of capitalist society produce a kind of political thinking which is called activism. And as a historical materialist, it's you could say that maybe there's some historical moments when that is all that is possible, but ultimately we want to transcend it. Sure, that's great. Have we have we covered historical well, materialism? Well, not in a like, very textbook you know. way. Like, okay, so what haven't we covered? And where the big debates are is like how do all the component parts fit together? Fit together. So if if you look at the preface, um, the the preface to Marx's contribution to a critique of political economy, you get a very schematic dynamic that would say, okay, the way you do it, there's the economy down here, that's the base, and then there's this thing called the superstructure. And that's, poly you know, and yep, yep. so when people are talking about historical materialism, they're often talking about that, right? Is it true that the economy is the base and then you have this superstructure on top? Economy is what is number one, everything else is number two. Um, I don't think if you actually read Marx's work, you you really see that he keeps to that more than a schematic, right? So, like, when you open Capital and he wants to start talking about the commodity form, he makes a reference that, oh, well, it's necessary that there are already these juridical relationships that exist, these legal relationships exist that allow private property to exist. But a lot of the debate about historical materialism has been about that split. 
For me, I think, yes, there is a certain value to trying to understand the driving role that the capitalist mode of production has. But in a real capitalist society, you never have the base without all those other things operating at the same time that they constitute themselves as part of uh, a structured social whole. And I also think what is important is um, sometimes the contradictions appear at all different points just because a struggle is happening on the level of ideology, for example, doesn't mean it's not important or can't radiate out somewhere else. So I I think rather than being, you know, a lot of ink has been spent over that schematic and trying to say, is it true? Is it not true? I think what you what we need is to be active and, and creative thinkers that is trying to understand the complicated social totality thinking about its interrelationships and thinking about its antagonisms without being particularly deterministic. I think that's where historical materialism is is now, right? Um, yep. So that means, you know, we don't have a, give a second... like Because often that schematic was what justified a second role to questions of gender or sexuality or race or things like that because they were seen as being outside the economic. I, for me, that's not really useful. Well, yeah, it doesn't seem useful because obviously, yeah. you know, like re- reproducing labour is... Can only be understood and, and as, I, and I, as Yeah, and I think or... this will get to other things like, you know, again, to mention Althusser, again, right? So just... Could, well, you I, love Althusser. You said you're not an I'm, I'm not, you know. Well, that's... Something out. We, we kind of exist in this moment because of the wreckage of Marxism that you don't really have to tie yourself to a flag that someone had to in the 70s, right? You can kind yeah, of yeah. read and think, Absolutely. and I think that's good. Because Althusser, like, in he, and I don't know all his work, and I haven't fe- finished reading Reading Capital, but his essays in... Um, for Marx, like his notion of overdetermination is that you never like he. Okay, so he says in the historical materialist theory of crisis or contradiction, you never encounter it in its purity. Right. So even if we say that the crisis, the, the central contradiction is between capital and labor, it always exists in a society overdetermined by other things. Right, it always does exists in society with questions of ideology, politics, the legal system overdetermining it. Right, so in a country like Australia, the the class relationship has or is always as a historical fact. Right, has always existed on that basis of the dispossession of Indigenous people. The the instantiation of the white Australia policy, right? It is, you cannot get to, you can't just chuck that shit out at the window and go, but I just want to access the class relationship directly because in the actual Australian society, it's always been overdetermined by those things. So the class struggle necessarily means the struggle against racism. Does that make sense? Like, you know, yeah, no, that makes that makes where, real sense. where you could go ah base superstructure, class labor, ah race ideology painted on the end. If I just solve class labor, then I can deal with race later, right? But and I think yeah. this is going back to what I was saying before: the difference in methodology. In our heads, we can develop a in laboratory conditions theory of capitalism. I think doing that is useful. It is intellectually useful to have that. But when you try to understand Australian society, 
you're ne- as though it was a laboratory. It's not a laboratory. It's not the it's laboratory, right? Down. Like in the same way, yeah. now scientists are going to yell at me, but I think you can probably get something and drop it in a tube, right? Or laboratory, perfect laboratory conditions, and learn something about gravity. But as soon as I throw something out the window, there's fucking air currents and birds are flying around. Well, there's all yeah. There's, there's so many, so many, other, many forces other forces acting on it that right? aren't gravity yeah. that it gets comp- it gets totally less so useful. Th- there is often a mistake where you can go, ah, this is capital volume one. All right, that is surplus value. This is Australian society. I'm just going to hit Australian society with capital volume one. But actually, practicing historical materialism is doing something else. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I guess, trying to say that well, like if it if it teaches us anything, it's not that the we need to understand Australian society historically materialism. Was we need to understand what the, the contradictions yeah, totally. are and the, and and the struggles like, and they're going on. I, I do, I do, yeah, I do uh, think this really comes down to like this is not just an esoteric question. This is really coming down to how do friends and comrades get together and say what is going on, what is possible, what should we do? Historical yeah. materialism is part of that conversation to 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 even yeah. explain the possibility of what, what can happen. Because I think part of it is saying is not everything is possible in all historical moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds right. So, you know, like... Um, so so, so I, I think we probably have different orientations to current political projects. Like, I'm... For me, what I'm interested in is what is going on that produced a kind of layer of young people around, say, um, life in the inner city and questions of the city that propelled them towards a certain kind of attempt to develop a radicalisation of social democracy based on an existing Green Party. What are they able to achieve? How does this relate to struggle? You know, being a historical materialist helps us kind of think about that too. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. But... my my read on that is that it's the housing crisis, yeah, I think so. which is really interesting, right? Like it's just, it's rent, but, like it's yeah. it's rent, and it's it's living at home with your highly educated parents, and, and, like, and with, for for longer than you probably yeah, and, wish for for a bunch. I mean, not for me, but yeah. yeah. And, and and also, thing that you identified before is that this the experience of work right now does not produce the worker. There's not currently producing the worker identity like it did in the past. Like we've we've been in, we've been in a, a way, wage stagnation since 2013, right? But this, yeah. for a lot of you, it's cha- maybe we're seeing this change in different ways, and and you know, but that we have not really seen the return of the strike. You know, like the the workplace yeah. is not really the where people are thinking the point of antagonism, as the house is, or the home, or the city space, and I think that's interesting. Now, I, again, I'm not being deterministic about that. That might change tomorrow, right? Um, you know, yeah. part of being historical is to say that this is in flux and, dy- and dynamic and things are going on and, and things can change, you know, like, too. Yeah, but it, it makes sense if, because just, like, there's a theorization, right, that, like, you know, the the defeat of the organised working class in the 70s and, I guess, the financial kind of mode of capitalism then is, is really behind... Uh, like the housing, the housing crisis think, now, in yeah. that like it keeps staving off these housing crises by allowing like just more and more investment and printing more and more money to go into and the like way, that. If you, like I wrote a long time ago to say that you know if the in if in the post Second World War you could say there was a deal that was offered to the working class, right, which was like wage growth, yeah. growth for pro- productivity and consumerism. There was a deal that was offered, you know, either consciously or unconsciously, to to, to people in Australia which was um, 
you know, increase credit, increase cons- and cheaper consumption, right? More, more debt, more debt, more wealth, you know, yeah. and more household wealth. Like household wealth did increase, and more work. Like more people were working, right? Like you, you had more people in a home that were working. There were more women that were working. Um, so yep. the actual access to money that people had grew, even as labor's share of wealth decreased, right? And you could say that even uh, labor's yeah, and the share of income and wealth decreased. But what you had in your home, you had more shit, right? Because it was cheaper coming from being produced in in, uh, in Southeast Asia and China too. And since the the wage stagnation, what you've had is the increased growth of debt. And for a lot of people, and this is a difficult issue when you're talking about the housing crisis, has been property. You know, which you would like to. It'd be very nice to think, okay. There's you know, just this evil landlord class out there, but a lot of people that are landlords are, of course, people who sell their labour um, to live, often in very blue-collar jobs. And so it's a really interesting... How this contradiction plays itself out is, is going to be something really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Was there anything else you want to talk about, or are we done? No, I mean, I think that's historical materialism done and dusted. We're finished. I'm, I'm no longer a himbo.